talk about the, um, the creed. As you know, we've been in a series called We Believe, and uh, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the Nicene Creed, which, as you recall, uh, was, a count, was put together by a council of bishops and early church fathers in 325 AD. And then, of course, uh, later on, there was more councils. They, they kind of finished the creed in 381 in uh, Constantinople. And so there's this, there's this gathering of people, and they, ha- they come together to put this creed in place because there were alternative ideas being pressed forth. People who were were teaching things that the apostles and the disciples themselves had not passed down. They, They were teaching something that was against, that was different than the apostles' doctrine. And so there was a need to create an, an orientation, an understanding about uh, what it is that Christians actually believe. And the, the distance from uh, Jesus himself and some of the eyewitnesses began to, to dictate this because people started teaching their own ideas. And so the, the creed was a way to create a pattern of faith. Do you remember when you learned how to write that you had little little papers where you would trace the letters and you would create that that learn that system of writing by tracing the pattern of that letter. That's what the creed kind of is. It's an outline. And so um, it's been a really interesting few weeks. We've talked about how the creed begins with we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. I love how it's one God, not two. Marcion was a teacher in those days who claimed from the literal reading of the scriptures that there was two gods, not just one. And that was a heresy that they were pushing back on and saying, no, there is one God, the Father. I love how they they instituted the idea of the Father. It, It meant there was a relational fabric, right? There's an identity when you say Father. He is God, but he is Father. He's the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then it goes into a a section where we talk about Jesus quite a bit. We talk about Jesus's divinity, There was a teaching that he was not God, that he was just some super anointed human, right? And and so they they were saying, no, he is divine. He is from God. He is God himself. He was there at creation. He was sent here during this season of history, and he will return as God himself. And so so they dealt with Jesus's divinity, and then then, uh, also this section on Jesus's humanity, and, and there was a teaching that said that, that Jesus is not really human. He's God, but he's just kind of playing a little game. He's just coming here for a while, and he's appearing as a human. But nothing in hum, the human experience really affects him because he's God. And I think that's, a, that's a, such a destructive heresy because what it says is that Jesus doesn't understand what you've been through. Listen, the bottom line is, when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, he cried. You know why? Because he was really sad. When he was denied by Peter, it was really hard on him. There was something going on there. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was agonizing over going to the cross, you know what? That was real. That was not a a drama. He wasn't acting out. And you know why that's so important? Because you and I, you and I will be betrayed. 
you and I will suffer loss. We will go through an experience in life where we were, we're agonizing with a decision, and Jesus knows exactly what that's like. And because he went through that, we can have confidence that God is with us, that he is for us, that he is not against us. I, this, this week, my wife had a bout of, um, she got food poisoning. It was so terrible. She was sicker than I've ever seen her in the history of our marriage. I've never seen her this sick through five pregnancies, all that stuff. It was the worst. We think it happened. Well, maybe I shouldn't say. Should we say? We think it happened through a little cake pop that's sold by someone. And she got this little cake pop and it was chocolate chip cookie dough. So that's the only thing different that she ate than the rest of us. And she was so incredibly sick. I mean, it was awful. And I won't describe all of the ways that it was awful. Marty wants me to, but I am not going to. That is not what I do. I protect the dignity of my wife. She was in trouble, though. It was bad. And she, it was so funny because I just wanted to be near her. I wanted her to be okay, but she didn't want me to be near her. <laughs> so I kept coming to the bathroom door. Are you okay? And then I, oh, are you okay? Can I do something for you? No, just get out. <laughs> and that went on for a long time, but I, I was drawn back. I was doing other things. I was, I was like, um, you know, it Part of it was really gross, but I, even though it was so gross, I wanted to be there for her. That is a crude example of how God <laughs> really wants, no matter how gross you are, no matter how, what you've done, no matter what's happened in your life, he just wants to be with you and make sure you're okay. So, we're looking at, at, at these things about Jesus, these questions, and, and really there is a central question that we're dealing with in the creed. The central question we're dealing with is who is Jesus? Who is he? We deal with this so much in the creed because he's the central character of all history, all creation history, he is the centerpiece. He's the centerpiece of our worship as we come and gather and worship together. That's why we come to the Lord's table. But, but Jesus, the question of who he is, everything rises and falls on this question. Jesus in his divinity, which means who is he to God? What relationship does he have to his Father? Jesus in his humanity, what relationship does he have to us? And today we're gonna to talk about Jesus and his hope, the hope that he brings to all of history, all the cosmos, if you will, all the universe, hope that he brings for you and for me. And of course, we, to deal with that, we have got to deal with the human questions. The human questions, what are they? What are the great questions of life? And I think there's three of them, one is, is there more to life? Is there more to this life? I, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like there should be more, but I'm not sure if there's more. 
The second question is, do I have a purpose? Is there a purpose for me? Do I have a unique role in this, in this world that I'm living in? Do I have something that I'm supposed to do? And everybody asks this question. This is a, a gnawing question to people. Number three, is there hope for the future? Can we, can we actually have hope for what is coming? Now, if we take the world's creed, right? Not the Christian creed, but the world's creed. What we would say to each of these questions, is there more to life? The answer is no, this is all there is, so live it up. Live it up, get what you can while you can, because this is it. Do whatever you can to make stuff happen. Do I have a purpose? The answer would be maybe, <laughs> maybe, but you gotta make your mark. You gotta do something on your own strength and your own power and you gotta make it happen so you can achieve everything you can. Is there a hope for the future? Maybe. Some people say, yes, the future's gonna be bright. It's bringing progress. It's incredible the way humanity is making progress. Or you got this whole other group of people like, the future is doomed. It's all coming down, people. And you got those opposing views that we deal with in the world. But in many ways, it's, it's not hopeful. It's not hopeful. The creed is an outline for hope. The creed is an outline for hope. And I want you to see this. Let's read it together, the section we're going to study today. Join with me as we read it. On the third day... He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I want you to take your pen and I want you to underline in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. Because you need to remember that the council that was putting together the creed was also the ones responsible for putting together the canon of scripture. And there's a, there's a powerful idea here about how trustworthy the scriptures are about Jesus. How trustworthy the scriptures are about Jesus. A number of years ago, a author named Peter W. Stoner and Robert C. Newman, they wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. Science Speaks. And they were talking about Jesus and the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament. And there's about 300 prophecies. If you want to write that down, you 300 prophecies that are fulfilled, that have been fulfilled, that were said hundreds of years in the past, and Jesus came and fulfilled them. And so they started thinking about the chances. What are the odds of this kind of, of, this kind of thing? One man actually fulfilling all the prophecies. And so they had to start with small numbers because the numbers get infinitely huge. So they started with eight. They took eight prophecies. What are the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies from the Old Testament? Just eight of the 300. And what they found was that the chances, the probability that Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, the historical Jesus, could have fulfilled even eight prophecies would be one 
in 10 to the 17th power. If you want to say what words that number is, it's one in 100 quadrillion. I didn't even know that was a word. I had to look it up. I like, saw all the zeros, and I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I know, I know million, billion, trillion. <laughs> I, that's all I could do. I, I, but I, but quad, 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion. There's, it's amazing. And here's what, here's what they said. They said, it's like you would take silver dollars, silver dollars and fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. And you'd put one guy right in the middle of Texas and you'd blindfold him and you'd tell him to go and pick up one coin that was marked, one silver dollar. And he would blindfold, go pick up that one coin and those are the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight, just eight prophecies. Over and over again, you have to understand this. I know there's an onslaught against the trustworthiness of the scriptures, but it is not true. It is a lie. You can trust what the scriptures say. The books that are there were written with good reason and purpose, and they were selected with good reason and purpose. It was not taken lightly. It's significant, and it was passed on to us. And so today, we're going to look at three subjects. The resurrection, right? the ascension, and the return and reign. And so let's talk about the resurrection. Many, many people believe that the Christians of that day, were they, they would have just taken some resurrection myths of history and projected them onto their hero, Jesus. And that they would have just done this, that's how they came up with the idea of resurrection. But the story is remarkably different than any other ancient resurrection story. Any of the other resurrection myths found throughout history, it has no precedent, no equal in what they claim, in the way that they talk about Jesus' body, about him eating, him appearing. They were struggling, in, even in their accounts, they were struggling to describe what had actually happened. And Paul was the one who saw it, and, and he, he saw it in the Old Testament after the resurrection had already come, and he saw it all coming together in Christ, but the disciples did not expect it. He, Jesus even told them what was gonna happen. It's recorded several times. The, the disciples themselves and the writers of the Gospels, right, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John themselves, they write about how they didn't see it. <laughs> Jesus said, now here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be persecuted. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. Then he's going to be uh, uh, placed in a, in a tomb, and then he's going to come to life three days later. And they just couldn't get it. Because, why? Because it was so fantastical. It was this miracle. They, the Jewish people, maybe at the end of history, they would have understood resurrection, but they certainly never saw it coming in the middle of history. And so Paul is beginning to stitch it all together, and he's, he's not making it up, right? He's looking at the Old Testament, but he's also, he's got eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. We have the testimony 
of witnesses. Look, here's what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9 says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, this is the most important thing, that Christ died to, for our sins according to the scriptures. There's that phrase again. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You should underline that. Most of whom are still living. They, then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Jesus appeared to Paul the apostle on the road to Damascus, and it was an incredible encounter that changed his life completely. But here's what we have to understand is there were witnesses, and they could, they could be consulted for corroboration that this actually happened. And there's a problem that we have in our modern day when we think through a scientific lens. We think about evaluating this through the lens, some would call it a Newtonian scientific lens, Sir Isaac Newton. He had an idea that science was, was projected onto the universe and we, we study things and the universe is like a machine. And the machine has predictability, and we'll just look at it, and we'll predict these things. But interestingly enough, in the last 50 to 100 years, we continue to discover a new kind of science that predicts the universe, uh, the, uh, the, that is unpredictable in the universe. As we go to, the, to quantum physics, as we go to the subatomic level, as we go deeper and deeper into matter, what we find is that there's a randomness that was previously thought to not exist. A wildness and a, and a, a, a randomness that is not predictable. And it's the question is, do we, do we really know what we don't know? Do we, do we really know that we've got it all figured out? That's why last week I... I spoke about the idea that there is a third way to discover truth. Not just history, not just science. Even though, listen, I am not opposed to science. I think we should go, keep going, keep discovering, because I think what we'll discover is there's something else happening. And this third way of discovering truth is faith faith. The creed asks us to come in faith, not with a proof, but with a heart of worship and faith. And when we think about coming to any idea with proof uh, rather than witnesses, like if we discount eyewitnesses, then uh, all of our uh, culture sort of falls apart, <laughs> Right? We, witnesses on the stand in court. We, there's a whole bunch of people who don't think we ever landed on the moon because they didn't personally witness it. <laughs> right? If, if personal witnessing, is, if, if you witnessing it is all you can ever receive as truth, you're in a load of trouble. And so there's some, some unrepeatable events that are widely believed, like the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Nobody was there, it doesn't seem to be repeatable, and yet people believe it. 
So there's an interesting thing here. We are not given proof of the resurrection. We are given witnesses. That's an interesting idea. We're not given proof. We're given witnesses. And there is a difference because historic witness of the resurrection is not an invitation to being arrogant. It is an invitation to humility. Think about that. Historic witness of the resurrection is an invitation to humility, to receive what has been passed on from others. Everything that you and I believe, we've received. Everything that you and I believe about the scriptures, everything that we believe in our faith has been received from those who've gone before us. And that requires a humility. It requires a perspective. Witness is an invitation to humility. So what does it mean? Well, if a dead person comes back to life, right, then that's a pretty awesome thing. But that's actually not resurrection. A dead person coming back to life, that actually happens today. That's called resuscitation. Resuscitation, we're not talking about resuscitation, we're talking about resurrection. Not, not a resuscitation, but a new creation is what happened at the resurrection. And Jesus had a body, right? He had a new body, a different body, it still had some scars, but he could, he could be touched, he could be interacted with, he could eat, and then, but interestingly enough, he could appear out of nowhere. That's why he kept scaring the disciples. Everywhere he went, he had to say, peace be with you. Why? Because he was scaring them every time he showed up. It's okay. Calm down. It's all right. He'd show up in a room. And there he was. And then suddenly they'd be at a meal with him and he would disappear. And they'd be like, what is that? Here's the point. With the resurrection, everything changed. Everything in their faith changed. Resurrection changes everything. They had no pre-existing category for it. That's why not all the accounts actually line up. <laughs> You're thinking, Pastor Russ, don't, don't highlight that. <laughs> the accounts on, all the accounts in the Gospels, they don't all automatically line up. Look, all the experts will tell you that people who are lying have everything too perfect. They've got it all too perfect in the way they tell the story and the way they line it up. When you have multiple witnesses to a big event, you have differing kind of versions that all kind of lead to the same conclusion. But it's the, the person's experience and their perspective that you see. And that's why the writers wrote from their perspective. And this, these different perspectives are unique versions. And they just tell the story the way they could recall it. 500 witnesses, Paul says, saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. Here's what Paul said in First Corinthians, go down a few verses, verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul is repeating himself here. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What an amazing idea. That reminds me of our first question. Is there more to life is there more to life? The answer is yes. Because of the resurrection, we can receive his life. 
not only in the future, but in the here and now as well. That eternal life is given to us, we discover it, and we're awakened to it. It is power, it is, it is an incredible gift that Christ gives us. And it's important to our lives and our faith. We go to number two, the ascension. The ascension, now people, sometimes they don't really talk about the ascension a lot. What is the big deal? Like, where did he go <laughs> when he ascended and they saw him and they, they saw him in the clouds and there's a lot of verses about the son of man coming in the clouds and what is that all about? And it's, it's, it's less concerned, I think, the idea of the ascension with marking the event in history which makes it different than the resurrection stories. More concerned with meaning. There's a meaning about the ascension. The gospels all refer to this idea of the son of man coming in the clouds. But as I've been uh, sort of peeling back the layers of all of these things, I've realized and I've, I've discovered and, and just reading some other people and listening to others, it's very clear that the ascension is really not about Christ's return and more about Christ's ascension to heaven. Now check this out. Look at, I don't, I don't have this on your notes, but Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14. I'm going to have them put it on the screen. Check this out. This is Daniel, and he's, he's got a vision, and this is a prophetic book. Look what he says here. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. Check this out. He approached the ancient of days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Could it be that coming in the clouds isn't coming down, that it's coming up? That he's coming up to receive his authority, all authority on heaven and on earth. Could it be that this is a, a vision about him receiving his authority from God's perspective, not our perspective? Think about that. He's coming up, kind of like if you, if you ever are a Lord of the Rings fan, you know, King Aragorn, he comes, and they, they, he's coming up all the steps to uh, receive his kingdom you see this, he's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father, is what the creed says. And I want you to think about the, the right hand of the Father as being not an absence, but a more powerful presence. Not an absence from us, but a more powerful presence because he sits at the right hand of the Father. Are you guys still following me? It's kind of an interesting idea. If you kind of look at your, I can see you thinking. You're like, yes. Hmm. Look at Ephesians 4.10. Look what it says. It's, here's Paul, and he's describing how, how the body of Christ works and how Jesus is the head of it. And then when he gets to verse 10, he says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might, look at those last few words, that he might fill all things. 
Do you know what happened when he went to be seated at the right hand of the Father? His, the, the plan was always that he would fill everything. That he would fill all the earth. That sounds like the opposite of escaping this world or leaving this world. It is Christ filling everything in every way, as Paul writes it in another place. Like the military that controls the air in a battle, once you've controlled the air, now it's just a matter of time, and the troops are going in. That's the time we live in. But make no mistake, Jesus is Lord over the power over everything, over, in, over everything in the universe, over everything in the world. And you're looking at me like, well, man, it sure seems like it should be better than it is. Here's, here's the point. He has control of the air, but the ground troops are still working. We're still moving. We're in that in-between, between the time when his kingdom is finally established. Established in every way. But make no mistake, he's the king. He is the king. And he's filling everything. He's filling people's lives who will receive him. He's filling our marketplace for those who will listen and hear his voice. He's filling our schools if we will just listen and open up our eyes and our ears to hear him and to see him. And so there's a, there's a presence that he has sent here. And it's the Holy Spirit Look at Acts 1, 8 through 9. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This is Jesus, and he's telling his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said all these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of, his, out of their sight. This is very interesting. It's reminiscent of an Old Testament story. Check out the Old Testament story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Now, all these disciples would have known that story. It would have been a well-known story. Check it out. 2 Kings 2, 9 through 10. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, if you don't know the story of Elijah and Elisha, Elijah was an incredible prophet. And Elisha, he was a mentor to Elisha. And so Elijah was about to be taken. And he's one of those guys, one of the very few who was taken up into heaven without actually dying. And, and, and that happened very few times within the scriptures, but, but Elijah is taken up, and, and, and they know it's coming. They know it's going to happen, and Elisha is saying, I want you, what do you, what do you, Elijah says, what do you want from me? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of everything that you have on you. Whatever spirit is on you, I want, I want a double portion of that. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. I love this. So you know what Elisha does? He follows Elijah around like a puppy dog. He, Elijah keeps trying to leave him and say, oh, why don't you go over there? Or why don't you go over here? Elijah's testing him somehow. But Elisha just sticks to him like glue. He just follows him everywhere he goes because he doesn't want to miss this. Does that sound like it could be a great description for how you and I are supposed to live with Jesus himself? Closer and closer to him. Never let him out of your sight. Never let him go. Just always following him everywhere he goes in everything that he wants to do and we're just following. This is what Jesus 
said to his disciples. He said, look, I'm going to go, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And if it's kind of like he's saying, when you see me leave, something else is coming. And they saw him leave in the clouds. And that was their sign to know the Holy Spirit is coming. What he said is true. And it's the Holy Spirit living within us. And they recall the Old Testament scriptures, and this would have, this would have come to them. Look, the ascension is really about Christ's enthronement and our empowerment. That's the real bottom line. His ascension is about enthronement and empowerment. Jesus is enthroned above all things. He has defeated every enemy. Death has been defeated. It no longer has mastery over any person who knows Jesus himself. He's over all. He's destroyed every enemy. And now... He's empowered us to cooperate with his purpose. He's empowered us to cooperate with his plan, to collaborate with him. This sounds like the second question. Do I have a purpose? Yes, you have a purpose. Because, of Jesus, because Jesus himself ascended, we have power to join in his mission here on earth. His mission, sharing the good news of who he is. Number three, finally, the return and reign. Listen, the return, it is not an, an absence. It's not like he's been gone. Jesus is filling everything in every way by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. And here's the problem. We think about the return and all we can imagine is all the crazy books and all the crazy movies we've seen about Jesus coming back. I want you to let me speak to you plainly about what I believe about this. Because I think when we start believing all the crazy pictures, all the volumes, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in the time of a movie called A Thief in the Night. Some of you remember that, it, a thief in the night. It was like, it's, it's the scripture where Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. And it was all about the rapture and he's going to take everybody out. All the left behind stuff, right? All the late great planet earth. It's all about the rapture and people's clothing suddenly like, and they're gone and their clothes are like there. People are car crashing everywhere because suddenly they're taken away and the car is driverless. Actually, there's really not, there's really not much in the scriptures that describes anything like that. It certainly describes nothing that the apostles would have said. Because there is a, you gotta understand rapture theology is only about 150 years old. It was only created a few hundred years ago. It is taken, and it's a, I think it's a misrepresentation. That's my personal opinion. If you have a different opinion, it's okay. We, if, as, this, is why, this is why we say the creed. We know he will come again. You think it might be at a different time than I do in a different way, but that's okay. We believe he will come again. So, so I just want to say to you, we, we, we need to read the scriptures, and we need to read the prophetic books as symbols and not as codes. When you read it as a code, then you go, oh, I got to figure it out. I got it all, oh, I figured it all out. There's this and that and this. And if you, if, you, if you try to deal with the Bible too much in, in working out a code, a scientific code, you will end up plastering billboards all over the nation that says judgment is coming. 
in December of 2012. <laughs> it's true, that, that actually happened. Billboards all over the nation, judgment is coming, as he's coming in 2012. It, when you look at the Bible, you look at prophecy as a code rather than a symbol. Look, if you look at the book of Revelation, check out all the beasts. When I was growing up, the ten-headed or ten-horned dragon was really about the European Union, and then there were less than ten people in the ten year, in the European Union, and then there was more, and then and and so people like have this. They project these things onto biblical prophecy. We should see them as as symbols. Make no mistake, there have been many beasts throughout history, tyrannical rulers who have violated mankind. Everybody from Domitian to Hitler. We can say that there are beasts in our history, but we have to understand that these writings, these proclamations, these ideas, they're not from the original apostles or early church writings. What about, some people say, what about Paul caught, saying it's, we'll be caught up in the air? I think, again, this is a, maybe a misunderstanding of the context that Paul was speaking in. Because when, we, when a king was entered into a conquered territory, there was a mentality that the people would go out to meet him and usher him into his conquered territory. All the readers that Paul would have been writing to would have understood this is the way it works. And so we meet Jesus as he comes to his conquered territory as the ruler, as the king over all the earth when he returns. We may meet him in the air, but it is to usher him in to a new heaven and a new earth. Somebody say, what about Matthew 24 and all the, you know, one person will be left and one person will stay and one, what about all that? Listen, many, most Bible scholars, I think, believe that this was a siege that would happen in Jerusalem in AD 70, and it would be the destruction of the city. Not disappearing out of our clothes and, and the earth going crazy. Not only do I think this is probably a wrong way to view the scriptures, but I think it loses, it holds no hope. It holds no hope for us like the creed brings us when we begin to understand it and to understand the outline of faith. We're not escaping the world, but we're welcoming the king back into his reign. So he's, he, he's, he's coming, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Let me just say this, the last thing I'll say to you, judgment, judgment in the Hebrew mind would have been vindication and justice. I was reading a, a blog of... Um, a guy, I can't remember him off the top of my head now, but I remember he, he was talking about how hard it is to read the Bible through the lens of a Hebrew slave. Because you and I live in Rome. We live in, in, the, in the country that's conquered everything. So we can say, oh, we're kind of a, you know, this miracle and we need to be a servant and Jesus, you know, God will lift them up. And we can read all that and kind of understand it, but you, you really can't get it unless you understand that you are the bottom of the bottom, the, the worst of the worst, that you're the slave of society and there's no way you could ever get to the top. There's a vindication and a justice and it, here's what you have to get. In order for there to be justice, there has to be judgment. 
You don't get just, judge, justice without judgment. Look at our last scripture here, Psalm 98, 5 through 9. Look what it says. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and blasts of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This psalmist is pretty happy. Why is he so happy? What is the great, what's so great about this? People always look at judgment as something bad, but the psalmist sees it as a wonderful thing. Why? Because God is returning to make everything right again. As it was in the beginning, so it will be at the end. And when the judge comes to the earth, the oppressors will not rule anymore. The tyrants will be thrown out. The orphans will no longer be orphaned. The humble will be lifted up. Jesus himself will set everything to rights. What if, what if that would be our loudest message about the end times? What if that could be our greatest message? Like God's going to set everything right and people who've been mistreated and the poor and the, and the weary, they're going to be cared for. What if our message could be restorative and setting things right and justice for the oppressed? Not blood moons and stock market crashes. By the way, I think it is upsetting. It is disconcerting that American Christians often talk about end times in context of where the stock market is. When we're about to lose our money, that's when we think the end is coming. We have to have a different perspective. God will judge fully when he returns. And here's the wonderful thing. Because he's going to judge fully when he returns, you and I don't have to take vengeance on people now. The idea that he is the judge means that we can treat even the people who mistreat us with love and kindness and forgiveness because that's not our responsibility to judge them. There is a judge and he's going to make himself known. And if he is coming to judge the living and the dead, we don't have to. We, we are not designed to carry judgment. We are not designed to carry unforgiveness in our souls. It does nothing but destroy us. The creed says that the judge is coming to judge the living and the dead, and so we are relieved of that responsibility so we can live a life of joy and hope and expectation. Christian hope is not about escaping this planet but welcoming Jesus back into our world. And for the present, we can participate with what he's doing. We can feed the hungry. We can care for the poor. We can speak for life. We can work for justice. We can care for people who need to know that the kingdom is actually coming. Because of the return. This is, the, this is that third question. Because of the return, we will share in his reign. It's a great quote by Bishop Leslie Newbegin. It says, he says, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Close your eyes and bow your heads. I want you to think about where you've been with these subjects, the resurrection, the ascension, and the, 
the return and reign of Jesus himself. And we're going to come to the Lord's table here. And I want you to consider this table as the provision of Christ for whatever you're missing. Maybe you need to lay down all your smarts about codes and figuring it all out and, and understanding it all. And it's not about any of that, predicting the future. No, we've been called to a life of faith and humility and you come with humility to this table I want you to think about the alternative narratives that you've used to answer these three questions about life. Is there more to life? Do I have a purpose? Is there hope for the future? What are the alternative narratives you've created? Can I tell you that Jesus is so much more? He's so much more. Jesus offers us his life, his mission, his future, everything being restored. This is a moment that we're coming to the table to confess, to confess our failures, our sins, our foolishness, our small picture of life, and we exchange it for his huge perspective of life. Would you be willing to do that today? Would you be willing to repent of your way of life and let Jesus fill you with his life? Where do you need Jesus to bring the dead things to life? Where do you need a reminder to participate in the mission? Offering forgiveness, participating in the work of reconciliation. Where do you need hope? It's here at the table. Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus your body torn apart so that we could be put back together, your brokenness for our wholeness. Lord, we thank you for the, the cup that represents forgiveness and salvation. And Lord, we just come and we receive from you all that you have for us. We love you. We honor you. We give you all that we are. We yield everything we surrender it to you and we take what you have in exchange. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.